I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but four Christmas stories by Charles Dickens that are not his famous contribution to the holiday season, that famous novella titled A Christmas Carol. Yes, that's important. A Christmas Carol is, of course, the slam dunk favorite of them all. But until today, I had never heard of the other four. The Chimes, The Cricket on the Hearth, The Battle of Life, and The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. Just when you think you've seen everything, somebody tells you you haven't. And apparently I've been in the dark for a long time about Dickens and Christmas. I now have some additional reading to do. Well, I'm not sure just what it was about Christmas that seized on Charles Dickens and his imagination in such a profound way. But we're about to visit with somebody who does know the answer to this question. Apparently, this beloved author Dickens had a thing for Christmas long before the runaway success of A Christmas Carol, and I'm very glad to hear that, because in a cynical way, you could be tempted to see him as opportunistic, just monetizing the holiday, following popular taste. It's always good to remember just how much A Christmas Carol, the novella, did to popularize the holiday, not the other way around. Well, I am delighted now to introduce you to Lucinda Hoxley. Hoxley is a great-great-great-granddaughter of Charles Dickens and author of the nonfiction book Dickens and Christmas. And all those two th- although those two things, uh, Dickens and Christmas, don't necessarily come in that order. Dickens first, Christmas second, no. It's, historically, it's the other way around. Still, it's common knowledge that Dickens's famous novella uh, gave a significant boost to the profile of Christmas as one of our most significant holidays. Lucinda Hoxley is on the line with us right now. Lucinda, thank you for joining with us. Thank you for having me. May I just ask, um, and I know you get asked this frequently, and you've had lots of time to think about it, but what's it like to have that in your family legacy? Well, to be honest, it's, it's quite hard to answer that one because ever since I was very little, I've always known about being related to Dickens. So it's quite a hard one to answer, really. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing in many ways. It's a bit of a double-edged sword when you choose to become a writer as a career. Um, but I always knew long before I was reading Dickens that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, as a child, I just constantly had a book in my hand. So um, for me, it's just a real joy to be able to do that. And I've done... Not exclusively, but a lot of the work I've done has been on Dickens or his kind of um, circle. And it's just a really fascinating way of looking into my own family history as well, which is a kind of bonus. So is there then a specific predilection within the family circle that Christmas is important? I mean, did that? <laughs> can you attribute within the family an extra uh, portion of Christmas cheer? Perhaps for some family members, definitely. And I absolutely love Christmas. I mean, I'm, I'm always ready to you know, start my Christmas decorating and writing Christmas cards and things. But definitely not throughout the family. Um, this year, I've decided as a family to do some, some videos and things that can go online. And one of my cousins, when I approached her, just said, I hate Christmas. So it's definitely not throughout the Dickens family. And I did say, well, please, can you do a video saying I hate Christmas and why? But so far she's resisted. <laughs> so it's definitely not throughout the family. Um, but me personally, I've, I've always loved it. It's, it's one of my you know, favorite times of year. Um, and I'm not a big fan of the winter. So for me, Christmas is the best thing about the winter. I'm glad we're interviewing you and not that other relative today. <laughs> uh, I can find Scrooges aplenty this side of the Atlantic if I really wanted to. <laughs> well, uh, I was just so surprised to find out that Christmas became uh, a thing for, for Dickens before he got writing about it, apparently. That, that's true, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, Dickens was always a big fan of Christmas, and his family always celebrated they, they particularly loved the music associated with Christmas because he came from a very musical family. And his older sister, so he was the second of the children. There were eight children born into the family, two of whom died in infancy. So there were six surviving children. He was the second oldest. Um, and his older sister, Frances, became a professional musician. So there's a wonderful letter that he wrote when he was a young man and still living with his family, and they'd just moved house. And he was having to postpone 
the planned Christmas party because the piano hadn't yet been delivered by the removal people. They couldn't possibly have a Christmas party without a piano. And all these kind of lovely things, when you're looking at his letters, you realise that all through his life, for his family, Christmas was obviously a very important season. I don't know that I've heard people talk about Dickens and music much. Is is this well known? Am I just completely uh, in the woods on this? It's probably well known if you're immersed in the world of Dickens as I am, but I wouldn't be too worried about not knowing that. And it's just a professional musician. (laughs) But, uh, But I mean, it was very important. And if you think about it, of course, in a time before the cinema and the internet and radio and television and all those things, they had the theater. And they had music, and a lot of that music was performed at home. So it probably assumed much more importance in people's lives at that time than perhaps it might do today. Though, of course, we are surrounded by music even when we're not aware of it all the time at the moment because it's used on advertising and things like this. Now, now that you've talked about the connection between music and theatre, we have to talk about his own aspirations at one time to become a thespian himself. Yes, that was his early dream. He didn't intend to become the novelist that we know. What he wanted to be was another Shakespeare, of whom he was a huge fan. He wanted to write plays and perform in them and travel all around the country and preferably travel all around the world. That was his initial plan. And I'm quite glad that he was very ill on the day that he was meant to have his audition with the Covent Garden Theatre Company in London because it meant that he ended up um, getting the work writing Pickwick Papers before the theatre company came back and he could do his audition the following year and then started to get known as an author because he did write a couple of plays and they do exist still and in my opinion they're just nothing like as good as his novels and I feel that if he had become the actor that he'd wanted to be he might not be remembered today and we wouldn't of course have all these wonderful books including his Christmas writings so For me, I'm very, very relieved that he didn't. But he was a very keen amateur actor. And in fact, contemporaries said that he was as good as a professional. So all through his life, he acted. Um, His wife, Catherine, at the beginning of their marriage, they discovered they both loved amateur dramatics. So they acted a great deal, including when they traveled. In fact, they famously acted in Canada, in Montreal, on stage at the theater there. Um, And they also did family theatricals. So this was when their children were born. They started to do every 12th night, which is the 6th of January, the very end of the Christmas celebration in the 19th century, which also happened to be the birthday of their eldest child, Charlie. And so on Charlie's birthday, they would start to do family theatricals. And these became enormous grand affairs with you know, people being invited to come and uh, policemen standing at the door to keep away gate crashes and you know, really like a night at the theatre. And they'd sometimes even do it twice a year. They'd sometimes do a summer performance as well. Do you think many families were doing this kind of a thing or was this an anomaly? I think a lot of families put on plays and theatricals, but I think the scale at which the Dickens family did it was unusual. Uh, I mean, Dickens would use a professional costumier to, he'd hire the wigs and the costumes from them. Um, you know, they had a, a kind of army of carpenters come in and ch- turn the children's schoolroom into what he called the smallest theatre in the world. So I think the scale they did it on was, was quite different. But it was a very popular method of, um, of you know, performing you know, entertainments for people at a time, as I say, before all the entertainments we take for granted today were created. And playing games, things like charades, was very, very popular at Christmas. And, I, and that, of course, is, you know, a kind of a small way of acting out stories. So, but the Dickens family weren't unusual, but they perhaps took it to a level that other people didn't necessarily do. Now, here we are talking about the biography of Charles Dickens, and we know that one of the major concerns of A Christmas Carol is along the lines of socioeconomic concerns, his concern for the impoverished peoples. And, and so here, here we've already described somebody who grows up loving Shakespeare. Clearly, he was literate in his youth. What uh, class of society did his own parents come from? Well, it's interesting. So Dickens was born into the lower middle class. And I teach American students, and they're always shocked when we talk about the class system here. But in the 19th century, the class system in Britain was incredibly rigid. And what you were born into, you normally stayed in. But he was born into the lower middle class. His father was a clerk. He worked for the Navy in the Navy payroll office. And then they descended into the absolute kind of almost criminal classes when his father was 
imprisoned for debt. And that was something that you know, was deeply shaming to Dickens and something that he told very few people about. So this was when Charles was 12 years old and he worked for a while in a factory, the, 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 the factory that made a liquid called blacking, which was a bit like boot polish and was used for many different jobs around the Victorian home. Now, this was a, a period of his life that he kept very, very quiet because in the 19th century, that was a way of losing your reputation. You know, now as an author, that would actually be something that all the PR people would go mad with. You'd be on TV talk shows. You'd been talking about how you dragged yourself up from this ignominious past. But for Dickens, it was a great shame, and it was a time that he never wanted to go back to, although, of course, he does go back to it quite a lot in his literature. The thing I think is vital about that time period is that Dickens never, ever forgot what it was like to be a poor and hungry child. When he writes about it, for example, in A Christmas Carol, this is what he knew. He totally understood because he'd lived there. He'd been that child. Now, when his father was able to pay off his debts and come out of prison and go back to work, then they were back in the kind of lower middle classes. And Dickens elevated himself through his own industry by becoming a journalist, by uh, then becoming a, a novelist. And he was very much middle class, the kind of the gentleman classes. When I say gentleman, not quite the aristocracy, but this was at a time when it was the era of the gentleman poet, the gentleman writer, the gentleman artist. So it was no longer seen necessarily as a bad thing to earn your money through working. There were certain professions that were seen as very kind of gentlemanly or ladylike. Um, and Dickens was starting to move through the ranks. And then, of course, by becoming this incredible celebrity. And he was one of the first people in this country to whom the word celebrity was attached when it went into the Oxford Dictionary, which was in the 1850s. It was a new word. Um, he was one of those, this new class of celebrities. And he, he was friends with people like the Queen's husband, you know, Prince Albert. They, they did a lot of philanthropic things where they were on the same boards, for example. So Dickens became almost classless. And that was highly unusual in the 19th century. So he was able to be read and understood by people from the aristocracy down to the absolute poorest. And it was said that even people who were illiterate knew Dickens because he was so popular that when the latest instalment of one of his novels, or for something like Christmas Carol, when the book came out, uh, his novels were all published in instalments in newspapers before they came out as books. But Christmas Carol came out as a complete novella. They would be read by somebody in the community who was literate, perhaps the local doctor, school teacher, um, church minister, would, would read to people who couldn't read. So it was almost like having kind of radio or TV. And that was how Dickens was known by absolutely everybody. And it was interesting that very few authors managed to transcend all those classes and make their work classless, because this was something that didn't happen very often in the 19th century. There's more I want to say about this matter of his position in society, his social and economic class. We need to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and continue in our conversation with Lucinda Hoxley. She's author of Dickens and Christmas and is a great-great-great-granddaughter of Charles Dickens. Stay tuned. Constant Wonder continues in a moment. Thanks for joining with us today for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. It's our great pleasure to have with us Lucinda Hoxley. She is author of Dickens and Christmas and happens to be a great-great-great-granddaughter of Charles Dickens. Lucinda, we were talking about Charles Dickens, his childhood, his father going to jail for debt, debtor's prison, uh, the, the shame, the, the uh, ignominy that, that came with that, uh, and, and how... He, in those early times, without a father there in the home, I guess some of the siblings and his mother, were. did they stick around? And, and, and how did he eat? What, where did he find money? Well, when he's, his father first was in prison, he was living with his mother and younger siblings. His older sister was already at school. She was at a boarding school as a music student. So she was the only one who was relatively unscathed. Of course, it was a difficult time for her, but her life was fairly unchanged. 
Unfortunately, Elizabeth, his mother, who attempted to earn money by setting up a school but nobody came, she soon realised that she could not possibly afford to keep paying rent for the whole family. So they moved into the prison cell with her husband. So that was she and all the younger children. It was absolutely terrible. I mean, imagine that with your little tiny children living in a rat-infested prison cell. And Charles Dickens had to live by himself in a lodging house. Now, he earned money by working at the blacking factory. And what he had to do was not only pay his own rent and for any food he needed, but he also needed to pay rent and food for his family in prison because debtors' prisons were these crazy places that you were taken into because you were in debt, which meant you couldn't work, so you had no chance of earning money, and you were charged for your bed and board. So, and if you, didn't, if you couldn't pay, you were given almost no food, you know, the absolute bare minimum to keep you alive. So that was what Charles Dickens was doing. He was earning money to kind of keep body and soul together for the whole family. And this is tough. He, was, he said in his unfinished autobiography that he thought he earned six shillings at the beginning a week, which was raised to seven shillings, which actually wasn't as terrible as it could have been, but it still didn't mean there was anything left over. Um, and he was hating living by himself in a lodging house as well. It was a very unhappy time in his childhood. And a lot of people say, well, it was less than a year. You know, why was it so terrible? But he didn't know how long it was going to be. And I think that's of vital importance to remember that when his father was arrested and then his whole family ended up in prison, they had no idea how John Dickens would ever be able to pay this debt. The only way it was afforded was because John Dickens' mother, Charles's grandmother, died and she was an upper servant um, of a housekeeper in an aristocratic home. And she left both of her sons a small legacy that she had saved. She was obviously much better with money than her son. And that was the only way that John Dickens was able to come out of prison. So it really was you know, a time of great uncertainty for Charles. He had no idea when his family were going to be free, if ever. You know, was he going to be working in this factory forever? Was he never going to go back to school? And people always say that David Copperfield is the most autobiographical of Dickens' novels. And there is a definite element of that when young David is sent off to work in the warehouse, just as Dickens found himself in a factory. However, I think that Great Expectations is also very autobiographical, with Pips yearning to be a gentleman, feeling that he's being kept in these squalid, poor circumstances when he's destined for greater things. And I think that's really what Charles Dickens felt. He was very angry that his schooling had come to an end. He did go back to school for a couple of years, but not for very long. Um, and he perhaps, like Pip, wanted to be a gentleman. And that's what indeed he strove to become. You know what all of this background tells me? This is what it does for me, is that I have often experienced the story of a Christmas carol in various iterations from print to film. And uh, I've often just kind of defaulted the idea that there's a sentimentality there about helping those people in impoverished circumstances. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're saying is what a lot of people have given as advice to authors is don't write about stuff you don't know about. And, and you're saying <laughs> quite clearly that Dickens had experienced this, his writing about poverty is authentic stuff. It is authentic, and you're absolutely right when you say that Christmas, about you know, this being the idea of being a time of giving, that was what Christmas had been traditionally seen as in Britain. And this will make you laugh because you know, we're talking about 1843, but at that time there was a big complaint in Britain that Christmas had become too commercial. <laughs> which, you know, when you consider the commerciality of today is hilarious. But people really felt that Christmas had lost its original meaning, which was a time of helping others. And I often think that the carol Good King Wenceslas, about the king who goes out with his page and they take, you know, um, fuel and food and everything to the poor, that was really what Christmas was supposed to be about. And traditionally, though, it was a time of giving clothing and food and, and you know, firewood and things to the poor people. And this is what was being forgotten about in the 19th century. People were thinking more about the clothes they wore and the food that they ate and having parties. And it had become a great time of feasting and revelry, but not enough was being done about the poor. Now, Dickens was also writing this at a very difficult time in British history because um, maybe some of your listeners will have Irish ancestry and they may be aware of the potato famine that happened in Ireland um, at this time. And the amount of knock-on poverty 
that was caused by this, this terrible famine and Irish people leaving Ireland and, and taking you know, a boat, any boat they could to come to England to try and find work while England was in the, the grips of the Industrial Revolution which had gone beyond the first stage of having lots of work for people into the stage when the machines were starting to do the work, which was great if you were somebody who could employ a, you know, a fraction of your previous workforce because you had a machine that did it. But, of course, if you were one of those people who was reliant on that work, it was devastating. So the 1840s in Britain, with all these different factors, are known by historians as the hungry 40s. There was a huge amount of poverty. And what Dickens was seeing in London, where he lived, was whole families kind of, you know, just desperate for work and starving. And then he went to Manchester to do a, a talk for a charity. It's where his older sister, Frances, lived. She was married by this point to a fellow musician and had two little boys. And one of her sons was very badly disabled. And he was the inspiration for Tiny Tim. Now, Dickens at this time wasn't particularly wealthy. He was doing okay, but in 1843, he himself was in quite a lot of financial trouble. He had an ever-growing young family, and he was very scared of ending up like his father and his children ever experiencing what he did. So he was giving his sister as much money as he could for her son, but he didn't have very much to spare. And in fact, when he started writing A Christmas Carol, he was overdrawn at the bank and really frightened about his own finances. But in Manchester, on that visit, he witnessed even worse poverty than he was used to seeing in London because so many Irish people ended up in Liverpool and Manchester. And he was just appalled. And he couldn't do enough. He didn't have enough pennies to give out to people that he passed. And he'd been asked to write a report for the government into child poverty. This was after he'd read a report commissioned by the government and written by a great friend of his, a doctor, Dr. Thomas Southwood Smith. And Dickens read this report and he cried. And he thought after a while, why am I writing a government report that no one's going to read? What I'm going to do is I'm going to write a story, a thing I'm used to, the things that people expect me to do, and I can reach far more people that way. And that was the beginning of A Christmas Carol. People don't realize it today, but the crux of A Christmas Carol is child poverty. That is what he was writing about. We've got Tiny Tim, of course, you know, desperately ill because his father isn't earning enough because Scrooge is such a terrible employer to pay for de decent health care. Then also, the, the children that always get forgotten are those who appear as the ghost of Christmas present is fading away, and they are the children ignorance and want. And the Spirit says to Scrooge, they are mankind's children. That is the message of A Christmas Carol, that scene, more than anything else. And it's the one that most people who do adaptations of it take out because it's a bit depressing. <laughs> because it's a bit, a bit depressing, yeah. Uh, so what you're telling me is that there's a convergence here be between uh, his humanitarian concern for uh, the children and uh, then also his own career... Uh, I, I guess it's a bit of a letdown. He's already established as a, as a writer at this time, but he's just not doing so well. People aren't enjoying his stuff as much. Yes, and this is partly because of America. I hate to tell you. Dickens visited America in 1842, uh, the year before he wrote A Christmas Carol, and he wrote his first travelogue, American Notes. And he visited North America and Canada and loved it, but he also wrote very honestly about a lot of the things, particularly about slavery, which he was appalled by, because, of course, this is pre-Civil War. And people in America felt that he'd been really rude, even though he'd actually said some lovely things about America as well. He then wrote Martin Chuzzlewit, and Martin Chuzzlewit was the only one of his books where the readership numbers dwindled while it was being serialized. And his publishers started to think, okay... This isn't great. You know, he's written this weird travel book where nobody really knows what it is. And then he's written this novel that people don't like as much as his earlier ones. Maybe his star is on The Descendant. Perhaps he's not, you know, the great celebrity we thought he was. And when he came up with his next idea, which was a story about Christmas, they thought, this is completely ridiculous. Who wants to read a story about Christmas? That's just bizarre. That's not going to sell. Um, they didn't understand, of course, the incredible commerciality of what Christmas as a literary theme would become. And he had to largely self-publish A Christmas Carol, not entirely, but, for example, he wanted some very beautiful hand-tinted illustrations 
by a friend of his, who was a great illustrator called John Leach, and Dickens, of course, wanted to pay him properly. And the publisher just said, well, we can't afford that, so you're going to have to pay for those. And Dickens was incredibly broke by the time A Christmas Carol came out, and so so financially strapped, in fact, that what he did the following year was rented out his home in London and took all his family to live in Italy for a year, which may sound like a huge indulgence, but was actually much, much more economical than staying in London. So in a way, he was putting by, by he, he had to finance the publication of A Christmas Carol and, and about 50 percent of it. I don't know the exact percentages, but yes, a lot of the publication. The publishers only paid part. He, he was putting a lot of eggs in this basket. Oh, yes, he really was. And and he changed publishers. If there's any publishers listening, cautionary tale, he changed publishers as a result of their lack of confidence in him. So just as he got incredibly famous, he changed publishers. So the next four of his Christmas books all came out under his next publisher. Now, let's talk about, again, Christmas as a cultural phenomenon. You say that Christmas was under a bit of attack for having become too commercial, that people had lost the spirit of giving, of charity towards those who are suffering. And uh, I understand that a publication, the Chelmsford Chronicle, right after publication says, they make this pronouncement, Christmas is with us again. How much of a turning point was this? How much did Dickens actually do to bolster the holiday? He did a huge amount, actually. It was at a time in general when Christmas was starting to undergo a bit of a renaissance. And coincidentally, other things were happening at the same time. But A Christmas Carol basically captured the zeitgeist. This was what people wanted. They wanted this heartwarming story. They wanted the idea of redemption. And they wanted Christmas to go back to its original meaning. And this, all of this was encapsulated really in Dickens' story. The other thing that happened was that, completely coincidentally, in the same year, 1843, um, Henry Cole, who was a very busy civil servant in London, he had decided that he just didn't have the time to write all the traditional Christmas letters. So he commissioned an artist friend to draw a picture of his family, Henry Cole's family, all toasting each other and with the ba- a banner underneath saying, um, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And he then commissioned him to do this and had it printed. I think it was a print run of a 1,000 cards. I may have that wrong, but it was a large print run. So any that he didn't use he then sold commercially. So this was the very first commercially created Christmas card. And it wasn't a great success that first year, but it soon caught on, and very quickly printers started to produce Christmas cards much more cheaply. So that was a total coincidence that it happened in the same year, but it shows there was this idea of you know, the fact that Christmas was becoming something more important um, than, you know, in, in different ways from how it had been seen as important before. And, of course, Queen Victoria had very recently married Prince Albert. So many of the customs that we in Britain and in turn in the U.S. Um, are used to come from Germanic Christmas traditions because, of course, our royal family was German by heritage. And although the royal family had been celebrating in these ways with a decorated Christmas tree, etc., etc., for many years, it was very private. Only people around the royal court knew about it. And what Prince Albert did was he spoke about all these different things. So, for example, he had a Christmas tree put outside in the courtyard at Windsor Castle so that passers-by could see it, and it was decorated. And within a few years, this was the most fashionable thing to have in your home. So all these things were just starting to happen at a similar time. Now, today... Dickens and his uh, his relevance, clearly it shouldn't be lost on us that this is going, going to be, I mean, it, it's a perennial favorite. We all know mm. that. Are, are you seeing, is there any way to, to gauge the interest in Dickens? Uh, does, it, does it come and go over the years? It's interesting. It has been very constant in the last few years. I mean, 2012 was the bicentenary of Charles Dickens's birth. And there was a huge amount of excitement around then. And actually, it hasn't gone away, which is rather wonderful. I'm a patron of the Charles Dickens Museum in London, which is just a a really lovely museum. And they have an online shop, for example, and that's very popular with people overseas as well. Um, It's the only house in London that Dickens lived in as an adult that still stands, so it has a great importance. And every Christmas, they decorate 
Um, and that sees, you know, a lot of people come through the door just to see what it would have been decorated like in Dickens's time. And, and it becomes, many people say to me, it's become a huge part of their family Christmas. But it's not lost on me that there's something poetic about people coming to the rescue of the Charles Dickens uh, Museum, uh, given, yes. given the themes of his works. Absolutely. And, and people feel very passionate. We have wonderful supporters all over the world. The fact that we actually have an American friend of the Dickens Museum. Um, you know, it's, it's somewhere that people feel is really important. And I believe it's very important, not only as a family member. I mean, it's just such an, a little gem in London tourism because people often don't realize it's there. And then they get there and think, God, this is so lovely. It's, it's you know, quite forgotten by all the, the kind of, you know, the big tourist attractions. And yet you go there and it's just such a haven. And because people love Dickens's work so much, it's not something that really goes in fashions. You know, people grow up with Dickens, and sometimes they come to Dickens much later in life. I mean, I'm really gratified whenever I do an event and an older person says to me afterwards, oh, I was really put off Dickens at school, and I, now I'm inspired to read him again. And that, to me, is the best thing, because I think that you can get put off any major authors um, when you're at school. You know, I've never been able to read George Orwell, having been made to read him much too young, and I still don't enjoy his work today. You know, it's a pity because I'm kind of living in an Orwellian world at the moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'd be able to draw all sorts of parallels right now with Britain in 2020. But, you know, there are things that do put people off. You know, some people can't stand Shakespeare, and that if you go and see Shakespeare performed well, it's just magical. So I love it when people come to Dickens later. And I think that if you can rediscover Dickens, having perhaps been put off him at school or whatever, it's just a joy. And A Christmas Carol is probably the best way to do that. So when people say to me, which one should I start with? I say, even if it's completely unseasonal, you know, start with A Christmas Carol because it's so good. It was written from the heart. The whole of A Christmas Carol was written in just six weeks while he was doing all his other work, journalism and everything else. And it is his protest song, really. And as you, you mentioned, his four other books. I was just going to ask you, before I yeah. let you go, uh, these also-rans, are, are, are they good? The Chimes, The Cricket on the Hearth, The Battle of Life, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, worth reading? Well, do you know what? In their own time, they were, each one was even more popular than the last. So they came out, all five of them came out within six years. You had one year off, but they, otherwise they came out annually. And they were much loved. My favourite is A Christmas Carol. My second favourite is The Haunted Man or The Ghost Bargain because The Haunted Man is just, it's, you know, it's got a longer title, but we normally just call it The Haunted Man. To me, it's excellent, and I'd really recommend reading that. The other three, pretty Victorian sentimentality, really, <laughs> um, they have their merits, but they're not my favourite of Dickens's works, and very much written because his publishers and everybody else wanted another Christmas tale. And really, by the end, he was exhausted. But I think the reason The Haunted Man is so good as well is because, like A Christmas Carol, it was written from the heart. It was written in 1848, and it was the last of his five books before he started writing short stories at Christmas time instead, um, so that he could concentrate on his other writing mainly. But The Haunted Man is about a man who's been bereaved. His sister has died. And it's in the same year that Charles Dickens's older sister, Frances, died. And he, in many ways, is the haunted man of the title. This bereavement sits very heavy on Dickens and his main character. So I think that's possibly why it's the other one that I think is so good, because it was written with real passion and love and heartbreak. Lucinda Hoxley, such a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lucinda Hoxley is an author, a broadcaster, a lecturer. She is author of Dickens and Christmas. That title came out in 2017. And she is also the great-great-great-granddaughter of Charles Dickens. So what about this idea that Christmas just really wasn't Christmas as we know it before Charles Dickens came along? And that seems to be the case, pretty much. Well, you might be even more surprised at the next story we've got for you. It's, it's about a Christmas catalyst, you could say, something that really got Christmas rolling. And we're going to be talking about railroads. How did railroads shape the emerging Christmas holiday and make Christmas what it is today? 
It's all because of, well, a lot of stuff. But railroads are in the story too. We'll tell that tale when we come back. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. wonder. As the holiday uh, got going in the United States, the holiday we call Christmas, there came a time when things got really, really big. Most of us have heard about this before, that in the Victorian era, things took off. The scope of Christmas festivities and observances before that time was a little bit more modest. Sometimes we even go so far as to say that Christmas was a negligible date on the calendar. I'm not sure that's quite true, but you get the point. So the question is, what made Christmas take off like a rocket? Well, today we would actually say it went viral, and that pretty well fits with newspaper accounts of that time period, which called it an epidemic. Here's something from the New York Times, a couple of articles from the the, the late 1800s declaring that Christmas had become an epidemic in giving and receiving presents. It seems the fashion to be extravagant, almost reckless in expenditure. And uh, from 1880, also in the Times, people of all classes vie with each other in the costliness of their presents. Our next guest on Constant Wonder makes a case for cause and effect in this very dynamic period of social change and evolving expectations around the Christmas season. She says we can probably thank the railroads for this rampant expansion of consumer behavior that leads up to December 25th. I'm very pleased to welcome back to our program Anissa Ramirez. She's a material scientist, a science communicator. She's an independent scholar and an author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Welcome back, Anissa, to our program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So there's one fellow you're going to talk about for sure. His name's Henry, and it has to do with steel and a process <laughs> and about the year 1856. Connecting these dots is going to be kind of fun. So so who was Henry Bessemer? Is that how we say his name? Yeah, Henry Bessemer. So Henry Bessemer was an industrialist, and he was an inventor. And uh, he was actually looking for his next big thing and uh, it ends up that at the time the UK was in the was at war and they needed better materials for cannons, and so he went about making steel because the cannons then were very brittle, and so when they shot they exploded, killing the wrong person. So he's like, well, I'm going to make a better form of steel. It took him a long time to figure out what the solution was, and when he did, that war was over. So he said, well, where am I going to point this wonderful material? So he went and pointed it to the blossoming uh, technology of the railroads. And it took off. When Henry Bessemer uh, just started off, uh, there were in, in the United States there were maybe 3,000 uh, miles of track around 1840. Just 20 years later, uh, there was enough track to go around the world once. 40 years later, there was enough track to go around the world 10 times. And with all this steel, the whole United States was connected, and so people could move products and people and information. But along the way, America was, was inside of the Industrial Revolution, and there was a need to, to sell products, sell a lot of them. And this is where Christmas comes involved, because Christmas was actually a very minor holiday. Uh, it, was, it was mostly celebrated by Christians. It was a time of uh, being with the family. But what what happened is that this holiday became transformed into a gift-giving occasion to keep the rails moving with all the products uh, that I just discussed. Oh, to keep the railroads. Well, it's kind of like, um, well, I'm going to use the wrong metaphor here, but the uh, cart pulling the horse here. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> That's right. It, the railroads needed to have justification and consumer interests come in very handy there. That's right. So, so it was funny that, you know, we were... America is very puritanical. We were about scarcity. So somehow that cultural change happened where it was more than uh, just being scarce, but uh, about charity, of giving gifts. So that's one of the things that happened in order to make uh, Christmas this gift-giving holiday, that we had to switch how people thought about charity, not just for ourselves, but also in the process of giving gifts. 
So, uh, so the railroads were happy to move those products and, and people along with it, and each time a product was moved, they would be making money. And I understand that the uptick in the sales of Christmas trees uh, figures into this as well. Oh, yeah. Well, if you look at old newspapers, people are talking about there's this crazy new market. It's Christmas trees. And these Christmas trees were coming from Maine to uh, New England and New Jersey and New York, and they were traveled on rails of steel. If you look at these old newspapers, uh, there's a lot of post post office workers who are groaning. Why? Because there's this uptick in the number of Christmas cards. It started off as just a, a novelty, but then it just grew and grew and grew. And those, those, those letters traveled again on rails of steel. So all the products that were necessary to make the Christmas that we know was uh, made possible by rails of steel. Now, uh, it, it, the steel, were there not steel rails before Bessemer? Well... There were steel rails. I mean, the, the railroad tracks started off as wood. That didn't last for very long. And then there were iron rails, and iron rails needed to be replaced every two years. And when you have such a material that needs to be replaced every two years, you don't really have the, the space to grow because one of your business line items is that you have to keep replacing your, your rails. But when steel came along, steel lasts for 18 years. So now you don't have to focus on replacing the infrastructure. Now you can build your business. So rails had been around, but it took a while for them to evolve into steel ones. And part of the story here also involves uh, a real uh, fanaticism about Christmas cards, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it became a novelty at first. But, you know, this is the time where people were feeling modern and they were having nice things in their homes. And so this was a way to, like... Uh, keep in touch with people. Letter writing was very, very important. So again, all that was able to be shuttled across the country. And also people started to live further away from home. And so this was one way to keep in touch, particularly during the holidays. And so the Christmas card really, really took off. Now, in a way, I'm just kind of mulling this over in my head, and it kind of seems like consumer interests, consumer spending, consumer behavior, all of that, not just Christmas gifts, but all of that it was benefited by this advance in transportation. Uh, but in a way, I get your point that you couldn't have Christmas trees going very far without the railroads. And in a way, the holiday was capped and, 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 and wouldn't have grown. Yeah, you needed a way to transport things. And before the railroads, th- people traveled by stagecoach. Stagecoaches were took a long time. Uh, if you were traveling from Boston to to Washington, D.C., which is uh, several hundred miles. That took a couple of days by stagecoach, but by train that was one day. And so once you had a quicker way to travel and move things across and move products across, uh, then, then you had the infrastructure that you need to build this economy. And uh, Christmas provided that rapid pulse to sell and sell and sell a lot of stuff. So how do you go about the business of really weighing this and doing the chicken versus the egg kind of argument? Because the railroad comes along, it uh, facilitates transportation of things like Christmas trees and cards and correspondence and gifts out of catalogs that people are ordering. Uh, Suddenly merchandise can just move, move, move. And uh, how do do you know that the demand wasn't already there in the culture and we were just waiting for a railroad to show up? It's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, what, what I do know is that we were in the, eight, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, we were solidly in the Industrial Revolution. And we had gone from a country where there was scarcity to excess. And so there was a need to inspire people to buy more than they really needed. And again, we had the, the, uh, the mora- there was some morality with scarcity. And so, so there were a lot of factors that were all kind of happening together. It's not that I can say that steel created Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. The, the commercialization of Christmas was a lot of different factors. One of them was the cultural, the cultural shift within the United States. Also, the American, America was very, very broken. This is all happening after the Civil War. States hate each other. In fact, people felt more beholden to their state than to the country. People would say, I'm from Virginia, I'm from North Carolina. They wouldn't say, I'm, I'm an American. Uh, Lincoln said, these United States, because he was really trying to emphasize that everyone was very separated. 
So what we really needed was something to focus and connect the whole country, and that person was St. Nick. We could all believe in some guy living in the North Pole giving our children gifts. And so this became part of the connective tissue. The toys uh, were made possible by the Industrial Revolution, which traveled on the rails. So there were a lot of things that were happening at the same time. It wasn't solely the rails. It was just a cultural shift to unify the country. And symbolically, you've just pulled together in my mind why there might be a little toy railroad going around a Christmas tree. (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, you know, this is a, an example perhaps then, I know you're not an economist, but uh, the idea of induced demand, once the infrastructure is in place, sometimes you build it before you even know what they're going to come to see what kind of a game. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, com- companies think that way. I, an example that I think about is the Christmas lights. The Christmas lights were a desire not just for more festivities. It's because... GE at the time wanted to sell more bulbs, and they were thinking about how to do that. See, Edison had made the light bulb, and then the light bulb became much more efficient. And when that happened, that the power companies weren't happy about that because their bottom line was being affected. People were using more efficient bulbs, so less electricity was needed. So they started telling Edison, "Well, we need people. We need to encourage people to buy more bulbs." So you see advertisements that says, why don't you put bulbs in your attic? And why don't you put light bulbs in your basement? And then when Christmas came around, why don't you put bulbs around your tree? And why don't you put bulbs around your house? So there's always been this linkage between this holiday and commerce. And that's what I talk about in The Alchemy of Us. Yeah. You know, I feel a little deflated right now. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's because, you know... um, yeah, it's kind of like as a culture we've been had, we think these things are just traditions and they go way back. And the stories we tell are about, you know, the the candles on the Christmas tree. And it's just, oh, yeah, they're bulbs now, but, but they're really candles. But you're saying um, somebody kind of had a scheme. Well, I mean, those traditions are true. Like St. Nick is from an ancient bishop in Turkey, and the Christmas tree is an old German tradition. Uh, uh, tradition, you know, old, you know, old Tannenbaum is a German song to that tree. But what happened in the United States is those old parts were reconnected in a new way to create the Christmas that we know. So we can focus on the important parts, which is about being with family, showing people that we love each other. Those are the important. But it's the commercialization, the desire to buy and, and, and outdo each other. That's the part that was definitely subscribed by the industrialists. And so that's what I talk about in The Alchemy of Us. Well, you're a materials scientist, and it just seems to me that you could pick anything that is tangible, that is physical, that is made, that is designed, that, and you could probably tell a story even about the tinsel on a Christmas tree because it's made out of material, right? You, if you wanted to pursue that story, you could. If I wanted to. I, I would have to look into it. But, yeah, there's, you know, everything... Every, every material around us, someone puts some thought into it. You know, we take it for granted. But someone puts some, they spent a lot of time after work trying to figure out how to make that happen. And it's something that we just turn on or use and don't even think much about. There are over 100,000 different new materials out there. Someone thought about them. So uh, in the Alchemy of Us, I only talk about eight, but I'm sure I could come up with way more. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Americans are very well known for pursuing um, growth economies. Nobody ever talks about a no-growth economy. And if you're growing, growing, growing Christmas trees, and if you can transport them and sell them, that seems to be an American success story. Do you ever look at the downside, though, too? I mean, there's the, all the environmental concerns. And right. uh, I mean, is that on your radar screen, too? Oh, you know, I don't cover that, but there's also uh, the desire for plastic trees. I don't know about its impact, but, you know, having a permanent tree, where, where do you put that, you know, when you're done with it? I, I don't talk about the recycling stage of Christmas trees, uh, but I do just talk about how this holiday, which we thought is very old, how it was, how it was actually created in a boardroom. And if you look further on, it ends up that... Uh, the, if you look at Thanksgiving, this will also give you a, a clue that Christmas had some kind of connection to capitalism. Lincoln actually said that uh, Thanksgiving should be the, the fourth Thursday of November, and we celebrated it on the third uh, Thursday. 
And that's because FDR moved it. And he did that because lobbyists from department stores and all these industrial, industrialists said, please move it so there's more time for shopping. So uh. those are some of the things that kind of point to, you know, capitalism had a hand in this. Have you reflected on more recent technological advances in the materials, the contraptions, the devices that we have? And can you, can you connect dots to uh, new trends or maybe emerging trends where our, our observances of a, the holiday of Christmas are tied to what the boardrooms are doing, something new in, in recent decades? Oh, with Christmas? I, I can't think of uh, new technology. It's a, it's a great boon. And, and actually what people do is they adopt new traditions for, for selling. So uh, right after Thanksgiving, uh, that's a big day for shopping. And there are some big, biz, big bookstores that have special days for shopping, that they just kind of make these holidays for shopping. So, so I think it's becoming a little bit more obvious that Christmas is about shopping. So I don't know of any specific technology, but people are really learning that if you create a holiday that's based on shopping, that will really fly in the United States. Well, do you have any personal predilection for understanding the puritanical place where we started from? I mean, the idea that we could scale it back. Does, would, you, would you betray your, uh, you know, your calling card as an American consumer to say that, that maybe we could scale it back? Oh, I think so. I mean, uh, I've always been a little bit less on the consumer side, and, and, and there are people who are swaying more to the minimalist side. I don't go that far. I'm a writer, so I definitely am more scaled back than most uh, because I can, I, things have been peeled back, and I can see, oh, how Christmas was born. Um, you know, for me, it's like more stuff, more problems. <laughs> That's how I think personally. Did you say uh, more stuff, more problems? More stuff, more problems. And that's coming from a material scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to just deal, you have to maintain, there's just more stuff, more problems. But, uh, but you know, I think if people understood what was the, ins- the motivation for their desire to consume, um, then they can feel like they have a little bit more control. Right now we're kind of on this escalator where we're just kind of keeping up with the Joneses. And that's the reason why I wrote The Alchemy of Us. I'm like, hey, this Christmas thing, which you think is sacred, it actually has a very strong secular component to it uh, where people are trying to entice you to shop. You have some control. You can shop, of course, enjoy it, enjoy the holidays. It's a lot of fun. But you don't have to do it to the extreme that you do. Uh, you know, so, so that's why I highlight where this, where this holiday came from. It's just wonderful talking to you. Anissa Ramirez, thank you so much. Thank you. Anissa Ramirez with us. She's the author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another.